Hello and welcome to There Will Be Spoilers. My name means nothing because I'm an American. Oh, neither does mine. All right. But for our audience, <laughs> they can call us Matt and Ethan. We've been doing this a few episodes now, so if you haven't heard them before, go back and listen to our first six and also our first edition of The Rundown. The Rundown! Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. This Sunday only. <laughs> no, we might be infringing on something there. So, Ethan. Yes. This movie, number 94 on AFI's top 100 movie list. Uh, it is episode number seven for us. And it's called Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. I love Quentin Tarantino. I love him. I love him. I love him. Okay, let's head this off as a pass. His character in this movie is terrible. Oh, yeah. He definitely. plays it terribly. Oh, yeah, absolutely he does. So why, why does he... I think all of his cameos, he's kind of intentionally terrible. But I think this movie is intentionally terrible most of the time. Which okay. is why it is so good. I'm a little more at ease then with how this episode's going to turn out. Oh, yes. But let's, let's do things by the book. Let's talk about Pulp Fiction, specifically its plot. Pulp Fiction is a 1994 non-linear ensemble film about an intersecting group of people in Los Angeles. Um, the film opens on Pumpkin and Honey Buddy deciding to rob a restaurant um, before it shifts to gangsters Jules and Vincent, who arrive at Brett's apartment to murder him and retrieve a briefcase. The film then introduces their boss, Marcellus Wallace, and Butch, who's a boxer who's agreed to take a dive in his upcoming fight. Vincent and Jules arrive with the briefcase, and Vincent agrees to take Marcellus Wallace's wife out while he's out of town. He picks up some heroin the next day uh, and then goes to meet her. They go out to Jackrabbit Slim's, a 50s-themed restaurant, um, and they win a dance contest. They have a great time, and they return to Marcellus' house for a final drink, a nightcap. While Vincent is in the bathroom, Mia Wallace finds his heroin in his coat and mistakes it for cocaine. She snorts it um, and overdoses. Vincent rushes her to his dealer's house, um, who's not very happy about him showing up with uh, a comatose... Uh, white lady, and they save her with a shot of adrenaline to the heart. Uh, then, in a flashback, we learn that Butch's father died in Vietnam, but left him a gold watch that his friend smuggled home to Butch in his rectum. Returning to the present day, uh, we learn that Bush, Butch did not take a dive and actually killed his opponent accidentally. He sneaks away to meet his girlfriend Fabian, but the next morning, he discovers that in her haste to leave their house, she forgot his watch. So he heads home and discovers Vincent Vega on the toilet waiting to kill him. Uh, and so he shoots and kills him because he's on the toilet. On the way back to the safe house hotel room, Butch sees Marcellus at a stoplight. So he hits him with his car and they fight their way into a pawn shop where they are captured by Zed, who ties them up and intends to keep them as sex slaves. Butch escapes and kills Zed's partner with a katana that he gets from in the pawn shop, leaving Marcellus to deal with Zed. Marcellus an, um, announces them as even, as long as Butch is silent about what Zed did to Marcellus and if he leaves L.A. indefinitely. So Butch takes Zed's chopper and departs with Fabian. We go back in time, then, to see the rest of Vincent and Jules' encounter with Brett and his friends. They're ambushed by a surprise friend, 
uh, but are not hurt. All of his shots miss them. So then they immediately kill him, and Jules sees their great fortune as a miracle. As they drive home with Marvin, uh, a friend of Brett's, who's the snitch, basically, Vincent accidentally shoots him in the head. They proceed to Jimmy's house, and Jimmy's playing by uh, Quentin Tarantino, where they employ the help of Winston Wolfe to clean up their mess quickly before Jimmy's wife, Bonnie, returns, which is imminent. Her return is very imminent. Um, after the cleanup and disposal of the car, they head to breakfast. The diner they go to is the very one from the start of the film. Jules decides to quit his life of crime because of his perceived miracle, while Vincent goes to the bathroom. Honey Bunny and Pumpkin begin their robbery, like we saw at the beginning of the film. Jules holds them at gunpoint, and Vincent returns from the bathroom, creating a Mexican standoff. Um, the encounter eventually ends peacefully, and Vincent and Jules exit the diner as the film ends. That is, I think, the best summary you've given yet. And might I add, <laughs> you got everyone, every character's name correct. I did, because I love this no movie. No more Lacey, and none Jay-Z of them have stuff, crazy names. <laughs> like last week. Lacey, Jay... Her name, Lace. What is her? JC. JC is such a stupid name. Lacey is a better name. Still a stupid name, but better than JC. Pulp Fiction. I think you hit it right on the head. You said something about it being an ensemble film. Yes. Now I would agree with that, and it starts with that opening shot, or rather a, t- a title card, which just says pulp and has two definitions of pulp, and we are given mm-hmm. to understand that maybe both are going to be admissible to this film. Yes. So this reminds me of like the pulp magazines, like yes. pulp fiction, what's named after. We have these really dramatic, over-the-top, almost, we think of them as the romance tradebacks yeah. in the bookstore, the kind of dime a dozen crazy plots. So this film really sets itself up for what you... It sets. It gives me... Exp- good expectations i think i think it it tells me what i'm about to see you're about to see pulp fiction you're about to see this dramatic over the top scattered really quippy based dialogue type thing so i think i knew what i was getting into when i when i sat down to watch it even though i had never seen pulp fiction right i still can't believe you've never seen this movie that's just that being said i've never seen pulp fiction but i felt like i had because all of the lines were familiar yeah because it's it has thoroughly embedded itself in popular culture um which yeah. i think is is one of the goals of the film right it comes out of pop culture to it, it sort of holds a mirror up to pop culture recreating it and blending it and mashing it all up um into something that is I recognizable greater than the sum of its parts. Yes, greater than the sum of its parts and very recognizable while at the same time being sort of about nothing. Yeah, so it's highly referential, but yes. maybe for a different generation. Talk about Fonzie and there's the 50 Styles Diner. Right. And there's a lot of songs that would be a little more recognizable to an older generation. But that being said, I'm, well, I wasn't lost. Obviously, I knew some of these references. Well, and this is the thing about Pulp Fiction. If we wanted to sit and talk about every cinematic reference, simply cinematic, not pop cultural, just cinematic references throughout the film, it would take us it would take us days. There are so many shot recreations from all sorts of, I mean, from 
Kubrick films to obscure early you know films from like the 40s and 50s to Kurosawa films and people have spent a lot of time dissecting what's going on in pulp fiction and it's really interesting you say that because it then spawns a bunch of that stuff it does how many tropes how many sayings how much anything comes out of this oh yeah when banksy when banksy paints your characters uh on a wall i mean you've you've arrived right <laughs> right yeah that's the highly recognizable jules and and vincent gunstrawn shot mm -hmm. toward, that's actually toward the end of the movie yeah one thing i wanted to point out is in the field of references is we get a near quote from do the right thing where jules yells english motherfucker oh. to brett what Radio Raheem yells at the Korean immigrant store owners. You're right. Oh, my God. I hadn't even thought of that. So I wanted to wrap that around because at least there's that for us here. If you're following the podcast, you've seen that film recently. Right. And so that should have clicked right to you. Yeah. Well, Ethan, let's get into some of the themes of this film. Let's. I have many for you. Um, I think... So this is what I think about this film. I think that... Um, this film is about the, the randomness of life, the meaninglessness uh, of life. It, I think it's very nihilistic. Um, I think it's absolutely about the absurdity of the mundane. Absolutely, and any Tarantino film is about aesthetification. Aesthetification, that's a word. It's a word now. It is of now. violence. It's podcast. It has to be real. <laughs> right? It is real. The aesthetification of violence, right, is, is extremely important in this film. And I think that the constant presence of death is an important theme as well. And so these are the few that I have cherry-picked for your listening pleasure. This being a Tarantino film, I think I was surprised that there wasn't as much gore as I think I was accustomed to in, say, things like Kill Bill. Right. I think this is actually one of his least violent or maybe not least violent, but least... Graphic? Blood and gore. Yeah, yeah, we see Marvin get shot, but that's more like a balloon of red gets exploded, and you barely see right. like a, a plastic head of his later when they put him in the trunk. But And they shoot up Brett, but there's no blood. You, yeah, you really don't see a whole lot of graphic violence. And right. but on the other hand, you do... Uh, Marcellus Wallace is being raped by hillbilly... Yes. Um, had a Confederate flag, I guess. Confederates? Something. Yeah. Neo, what what have you. Neo, what have you. Yeah. So it's, it's not explicit, but there are still very serious and unsettling things going on in the film. Right, definitely. And I mean, just about everybody kills somebody in this film. Right, and I think that's a good transition to this meaninglessness of death. Yeah. What I would argue the main character of this film was would be Vincent Vega. Yeah. John Travolta's character until he's gunned down after getting out of the, the bathroom because Butch finds his suppressed his Uzi on yeah. the counter where he left it and just gets just gets shot to pieces. And that's just, you know, that's a a meaninglessness in death that is a avoidable death that is a a embarrassing way to die and it's also painful he's taking a shit and then he gets shot like that's not the way you want to go out and the same thing with uh with brett's friend right I, they go over a bump and vincent has a, a gun in his hand because he's stupid and accidentally shoots him in the head 
Yeah, that was really funny to me because I, since I hadn't seen it, I actually didn't know that moment was coming. Oh. And then I just saw him with his finger on the trigger, and I'm like, he shouldn't, he shouldn't have his finger on the trigger. And then <laughs> a half a second later, <laughs> the explosion, I, I get startled by it because I wasn't expecting it. But yes, yes, that's another one. Marvin's death is entirely unavoidable. And Vincent's turning back to ask him if he thinks it's divine intervention. Yeah, I mean, everybody goes out in a in an inglorious way, right? I mean, we think of death as something that's really important. The way you die, you know, is important. You know, you don't want to die. You want to die in a, in a glorified way or a um, a way that's not, you know, unpleasant. Um, and we see people get shot in the head, shot getting up off the t- off the toilet. Uh, Mia Wallace almost dies overdosing on what she thinks is coke, but it's actually the strong heroin. Yeah, with this maybe fall into the category of something that we're actually introduced to in the film is if you play with matches, you get burned. All these people are in the wrong line of work is what it comes down to. Well, yeah, but I also don't know that I'm not sure that the film isn't totally ambivalent to what's going on. Although maybe it is. I was thinking about this actually just a few minutes ago before we started recording because I in my thesis statement, I I argued that the film is morally ambivalent, but I could be swayed another way, depending on the right argument. I mean, I think... <sighs> so it, there's a meaninglessness in death, right? We have people dying yeah. meaninglessly, and then it seems as if Butch is set up to die for another meaningless act. He's going back to claim a material object, which has this storied history, but when we get down to it, is it worth your life? Probably not. And he right. knows he's marching into something that's probably going to be his death. And he turns out there's a reversal there. That's where he kills Vincent on the toilet. Right. So there's a, you know, it subverts itself in that way. I mean, I, yeah, and I'm thinking like nobody is good in this film. Just about everybody, you know, I wouldn't, I'm, I'm hesitant to say deserves to die, but they're all bad people. Vincent and Jules are murderers. Butch becomes a murderer. He's clearly a liar and a, and a gambler. He's caught up with the, definitely the wrong people. Marcellus Wallace is a bad dude. Um, Zed is not <laughs> what I would call a good person. Yeah, he's one of the worst, I think. Although I think Butch maybe, and this might be reading outside of the film, and I wanted to bring this up. Uh, have you seen Netflix's Daredevil? No, I haven't. I haven't watched that. So uh, his father, Daredevil's father... Matt Murdock, his father is a boss, a boxer, and his death is exactly what is is exactly Butch's situation. He oh. is set up with some gang members for, because he's down on his luck. So he's probably taken out a loan or he's defaulted on something, and he's been told to go down in the fifth, and it might even actually be the fifth, and then doesn't throw the fight because he says, you know what, I'm better than that, and then. He's ready to get out of town with all his money that he's won because he told someone to make a bet on him, right? Mm-hmm. Just as Butch does. And then gets shot. So they lifted that wholesale from Pulp Fiction. And so I don't know if Butch is necessarily a bad guy. He's definitely down on his luck. And there's that whole talk with Marcellus about, hey, you're not aging like fine wine. You know, you're becoming vinegar. And it's maybe this this um, fight with finitude, this with, with morality and death so he's trying to stave that off i guess by surviving and making a lot of money right but he's still a murderer well he becomes one out of necessity because someone is sent to well i guess you're right he didn't have to shoot vincent he did not have to shoot vincent 
Okay, so I'm with you on this ambivalence. Yeah. Um, in the same way that, like, if our main character is Vincent, then he gets killed. I mean, it's and, and it would be different if his death was some sort of, like, blaze of glory, redeeming thing, or, or even, you know, damning. You know, he gets shot taking a shit. I mean, it's not, it, there's no, it doesn't feel like there's some meaning to it. Um, in the way that other death scenes, you know, are long and drawn out. I mean, I'm thinking like Boromir right. in Lord of the Rings has this. Whoops, spoilers for Lord of the Rings. Um, but <laughs> hey, you know, that's like, not until like number thirty or something. Uh, oh no, you've seen it though, right? Of course, I've seen it. Okay, and I'm assuming most people have. Um, so that you know, that's like saying, "Uh oh, spoilers! Darth Vader is Luke's father." Um, well, but, listen, our our podcast is called "There Will Be Spoilers." I don't true. think we have to disclaim anything. True. Um, but you know, like like you think about Boromir's death as this long drawn out thing, you know, this heartfelt speech. Um, you know, they. Well, send we're him. dealing with the dramatic and the melodramatic, which this movie I think is actually subverting. So it calls itself pulp fiction. Yeah. Pulp fiction. So those pulp stories are going to be highly dramatic. They're going to be melodramatic. People are going to die in those blaze of glories you're talking about. But it subverts that, right? It does a lot of things to subvert. It plays into a lot of these stereotypes and these tropes, but it then it subverts them. So I think that's how you can be most successful with an endeavor like this one is to enter into something that people understand a, a a trope or a type of genre and then you know work your way worm your way around within that see what you can avoid so instead of all these right. glorious deaths we we find mostly meaningless ones yeah and and so i maybe to finish my thought and continue what you're saying these vincent if we think of vincent as the closest thing to a main character um his death isn't it's not redeeming it's not damning it just doesn't mean anything but his life is somewhat redeeming in that sure he's a gangster a mobster a hitman kills people but when it comes to marcellus wallace's wife mia we have him having a more like a morality talk to the mirror right saying here's what you have to do loyalty is important and so even though he's in his life it's like honor among thieves so he's the He's not an anti-hero per se, but he's like a troubled character, which we can still identify with and feel good about identifying. Yeah, but I don't know that he wouldn't have banged Mia Wallace if she hadn't overdosed. Mm, you know what I mean? There's the, yeah. So right. like, there's, he goes, that. yeah, because he goes in and gives himself that, that, you know, that pep talk, like, don't sleep with the boss's wife, don't sleep with the boss's wife. And then he doesn't get, actually, he's not actually tested. Because but then he leaves and says, listen, Mia, I have to go. It's been great. And then he finds her OD. This is more like the close-up of her her frothing mouth. Um, so maybe. Maybe, but I don't know. That he, you know, could he have been convinced otherwise? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let me drop some philosophy on y'all. Situationism says there are no virtues that are stable and fixed. We just respond in a certain way, given on the situation. So you think yourself as an honest person, that's just because you've never been in a situation in which you are the dishonest person. You've never right. been pushed far enough. So let's just rain on that parade right now. There's no one virtuous. There's no people that are that are virtuous. Sorry, sorry. Well, and I think that's what this part of what this film is saying, right, is that, I mean, everybody's kind of shitty deep down. It's bad people in worse situations. Yeah. Uh, and so in some way, this I think this movie appeals to so many people because it makes you feel better about yourself on some level maybe not on the terribly conscious level um but you're watching a bunch of bad like you said bad people in bad in worse situations yeah or i mean you can read it as comeuppance right 
I mean, certainly Jules uh, appears to escape. Which we find out he does because there's a movie after this in which he plays a drifter. It's one of a ter- it's another Tarantino film. Kill Bill. I was Kill Bill. At, is it Kill Bill? Yeah. Okay. I mean, so it's he not... does in fact survive and get out of it. Well, it's not certain, but it's probably in him. Tarantino's extended ma- magical universe. Right. There's the the the, the briefcase the the golden briefcase yes. or the golden light emanating briefcase, which we never find out what's inside. Although you use six, six, six to unlock it. Uh, some people think it's Marsalis's soul. Cause he's got the bandit yeah. in the back of his head. And supposedly that's how the devil takes your soul out. Oh, um, but it's supposed to be initially when they wrote the script, it was going to be diamonds from reservoir dogs. Oh really? And they're like, that's not original. Let's just make it open-ended. Right. Which I think can kind of clue us into the whole thing of the film yeah what's what's inside the box well it's whatever we kind of get from it and that's also a a a pulpy trope is the i think they called a macguffin right yeah it's this something that you know everybody's chasing after it but we don't know it doesn't matter what it is who cares what's in the briefcase really um it's just a plot device to get things moving and people going places right and macguffin i think literally is a plot device that is inscrutable in that we can't it doesn't work. It doesn't hold up, right? Whatever it does, it does so because it's a magical or just sort of defies right. basic laws because it pushes plot forward. So I think to get us back on track, let's talk about our pivotal scene, which, or in this case, since there's no real pivot to the scene, I tried to pick an important scene that I think was done very well and is encapsulated very well to play for you. This is the watch scene with Christopher Walken. Ah. And what I think is really a good, good performance. So this is kind of a longer one, but let's take a listen. your daddy died in a POW camp? Well, this here is Captain Coons. He was in the POW camp with daddy. Hello, little man. Boy, I sure heard a bunch about you. See, I was a good friend of your dad's. We were in that Hanoi pit of hell together over five years. Hopefully, you'll never have to experience this yourself, but when two men are in a situation like me and your dad were for as long as we were, you take on certain responsibilities of the other. If it had been me who'd not made it, Major Coolidge, you'd be talking right now to my son, Jim. The way it turned out, I'm talking to you. Butch, I got something for you. This watch I got here was first purchased by your great-grandfather during the First World War. It was bought in a little general store in Knoxville, Tennessee, made by the first company to ever make wristwatches. 
Up till then, people just <laughs> carried pocket watches. It was bought by private doughboy Orion Coolidge on the day he set sail for Paris. This was your great-grandfather's war watch, and he wore it every day he was in that war. And, and he'd done his duty, went home to your great-grandmother, took the watch off, put an old coffee can, and in that can it stayed. So your granddad, Dane Coolidge, was called upon by his country to go overseas and fight the Germans once again. It's time they called it World War II. Great-grandfather gave this watch to your granddad for good luck. Unfortunately, Dane's luck wasn't as good as his old man's. Dane was a Marine, and he was killed, along with all the other Marines at the Battle of Wake Island. Granddad was facing death. He knew it. None of those boys had any illusions, but they were leaving that island alive, so three days before the Japanese took the island, your granddad asked a gunner on an Air Force transport named a Wanaki. Man he'd never met before in his life to deliver to his infant son we'd never seen in the flesh his gold watch three days later your granddad was dead but wanaki kept his word after the war was over he paid a visit to your grandmother delivering to your infant father his dad's gold watch this watch this watch it was on your daddy's wrist when they were shot down on that Hanoi. He was captured, put in a Vietnamese prison camp. He knew that if the gooks ever saw the watch, it'd be confiscated, taken away. The way your dad looked at it, this watch was your birthright. You'd be damned if any slope's gonna put the greasy yellow hands on his boy's birthright. So he hid it. In one place he knew he could hide something, his ass. Five long years he wore this watch up his ass. Then he died of dysentery. Give me the watch. I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass two years. Then after seven years, I was sent home to my family. And now I give the watch to you. So I think this sort of is the most that we get of this film for intentionality within the story itself. I'm always talking about story and how it should function. I think by now with seven episodes, people have figured out I'm the story guy right. here and I really want to see how things tick. I want to see them tick well. This actually gives motivation for Butch that I don't think many of the other characters get. Mm -hmm. He goes back to his apartment in what we see as an insane act to get this watch, but we're given to understand a little bit more about his character through that and it also motivates him. You can see it to motivate him based on its placement to not throw the fight, to come out swinging and actually kill his opponent and win, to get a win for himself, to sort of hold something up for that lineage. Mm -hmm. Rather than what we expect, which is him dying in that watch, just being discarded and no butch line continuing. Right. Yeah, I mean, he is probably the closest thing we get to a noble character in this film. Or at least one that is given more history than the others. Yeah. Although I think uh, Vincent has a lot of history surrounding him. He just got back from Amsterdam, which we're told a million times. Right. But we don't actually ever look into that 
that past the way we do with books. Yeah, it's it's sort of, that itself is sort of devoid of content, right? Like, we get all this content about him that doesn't really matter. Why well, was he in Amsterdam? What did he do there other than, you know, smoke a lot of pot and eat uh, Royales with cheese? I mean, not, it's, it doesn't really tell us, and it doesn't tell us anything about him as a person other than that he likes to go get high and eat cheeseburgers. Whereas, uh, you're right, I mean, Butch is sort of more of a fully fleshed out character which brings me to my biggest complaint about this film and why we do that go back in time to brett's apartment after they shoot brett the friend jumps out shoots at them that's avoided and then they go on this long adventure in terms of how of runtime Mm -hmm. right this is two and a half hour plus yeah it's not short and 45 minutes of it are this part that was completely and effectively glossed over in the film itself, the initial opening. So they have to get cleaned up and they show up at Marsalis's bar club with, you know, these dorky clothes on and we can just push that aside and be fine. And yet we're required to go back and see this whole extra thing about Mr. Wolf and the cleanup of Marvin's body. And I'm just thinking this this doesn't this is shoehorned in i mean we understand that jules has this epiphanal moment and it actually gives a smattering of meaning to the honey bunny pumpkin thing at the beginning of the film but it seems like those 45 minutes are just extraneous and they seem indulgent i think this entire movie is extraneous and indulgent Right, but it does so in a way that at least is structured well, to what I understand as a pulp magazine or a pulp paperback. But when you go back for this 45-minute aside, we can't invest anything in these characters. Like, who gives a shit about Mr. Wolf? Because we already know he's not important, because we've seen the conclusion of whatever events happen. We see Jules and Vincent, you know, 20 minutes after this at the club, and they're not in any way affected that we can see. They, we don't get to see their growth as characters through this because we know Vincent's dead by in the film. So it's just no, a we, very weird move we structurally. Get to see, we get to see Jules' arc and his we growth. We see an arc, but that's already overwritten because we see him in the club and he's acting normal. I, don't, I wouldn't say that he's necessarily acting normal. I don't know that we get enough time with him in the club to really evaluate that. That's my point, is that if you place this 45 minutes at the end of the film, we are not gaining anything from these characters because that is effectively overwritten temporally by the fact that we've already seen these characters after all these events, and they don't seem very different from the characters we saw before those events. Yeah, that to, to rectify your issue, we would either have to cut that chunk of the movie or do it in a linear way. Um, which is the... I don't see why they can't do it linearly. Because There's that's, no reason not to. Because that's... There is a reason not to, because it, it would have more... I'm waiting for it. it. Would have, I'm waiting for it. It would Ethan. have more meaning. Um, and I think the... How? Because then you would get a... You would have a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you would be able to follow all the arcs all together. The movie makes you work hard to try to find any sort of uh, arc or meaning, um, and I think it actively uh, tries not to have meaning. Um, even though it well, I think I think if you're pointing to this 45 minutes being displaced as a effort to to um, disrupt or obfuscate meaning, I don't think that's the case because we could have done that with any other scene. We could have jumped it all out of order. It could have been memento or something. But 
Tarantino doesn't do that. He just displaces this one third of the movie for an apparent. It just doesn't. It doesn't fit with its own. Its own. Let's do our thesis statements. Pulp Fiction is a film that explains or explores. I'm sorry the random and interconnected nature of mundane life and posits that it doesn't matter what you plan, things aren't going to go as planned. And the film ultimately remains morally ambivalent, just like regular life itself. That's what I think this movie is about. So I have a pretty similar thesis to yours. So for mine is, I always think outside of the film itself, right? I think of the choices made and why this film was created. So I think Pulp Fiction is a film that is mired in pop culture and referentiality that strives for a verisimilitude that is more or less accomplished by its referentiality, but is then also creating more pop culture references, more referentiality. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like this um, monster eating itself or this self-propagating machine. Right, the Ouro- Ouroboros. Yeah, except for this is a productive thing, right? There's almost like cancer, uncontrolled growth. Yeah. As opposed to this this cycle. For me, it is a cycle on a larger scale. But from what I see here in our narrow perspective of the world, we just see this this growing thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, pulp Fiction exists on pop culture, creates pop culture, ever-expanding universe type thing. Yeah. So I think we're both getting at the same thing. There's a meaninglessness involved here, and it's also propagating tropes, playing upon tropes, I don't know how many things we've seen, and this will take us into our three questions later, that how many things that we've seen here that come up somewhere else later. Mm-hmm. So what, let's, what do you say? Let's get into our three questions. So do you care about this film? Absolutely, I do. And I think everybody should. We had, we had an off-podcast off conversation about how much you care about this film. Yes, I think that it uh, it... Has it's part of popular culture now. It is it's a part of American culture. Um, you can't avoid it. It's worth it's worth caring about. I care about it outside of the events of the film itself. So I think there are some sticklers for me. Things like the really I don't know if it's like angsty, but it's super indulgent, almost like community theater dialogue. Uh, which I know is intentional, but it doesn't make me like. It doesn't make me like the like the dialogue just because that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna say another controversial thing. I don't like Cabin in the Woods for the same reason. It's it's like trying to play into this crappy um, genre, and it doesn't mean that because I notice it that I'm like, oh yeah, I love it. That being said, I appreciate the film for what it's done. The expectations, as I mentioned earlier, that it's set for itself and how it it accomplishes those. So, yeah, I do care about this film. Mm -hmm. But the second question is, does this hold up? Yeah, I think it does. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it looks a little dated, but I mean, I think people are making, I mean, how many films have ripped off Pulp Fiction in whatever way? I mean, it would... It, the nonlinear structure, or as you would call it, the less than linear structure, um, the that dialogue that you don't care much for, I think, is replicated um, in in lots of places. Yeah, yeah, I think it holds up because people are still doing what it what it was doing. 
I think that also answers the third question of, you know, what do we owe to this movie? I yeah. think that's abundantly clear, right? This is another film that's in the registry for America, right? Because it's yep. so influential. Um, so that, that, I think that third question is just kind of a gimme. It's the whole reason it's on, not the whole reason, it's a major reason why it's on this list. And does it hold up? I, I would agree it also holds up. There's not many things that you see that you're like, well, that's, you know, weird they did it that way, or this is a technological constraint. Right. Um, I think its reception now is much like its reception then, except for that those things that we are so familiar with now, whether or not we've seen the movie, as was in my case, they're already familiar to me. So I guess the viewer has a chance to mistake them for already tired or cliche. Yeah. But we we know that they're not. Yeah. I mean, I think that is maybe the um, the biggest issue with this film holding up is that things from this film have become cliche. And so if you don't know that this is the origin point of a lot of things, it's it would, would appear to be awful and, and full of, you know, this hackneyed, overdone sort of stuff, but it's the genesis of it. Right, and I think that's rewarding in its own way if we're able to see that for what it is and say, oh, this is the inception of this trope. Yes. Well... I think that's going to be our episode for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, next episode, episode eight, number 93 on the list, is The French Connection. 1971 French, French Connection. Have you ever seen this movie? I always mix The French Connection and another film up, so I might have seen it. French Connection is where they drive around in the Mini Cooper, right? I think that's the Italian job. I always mix it up with the Italian job. I have seen The French Connection, and I enjoy it. I don't know why I always mix those two films up, but yes, The French Connection is a great film. A large surprise. I have not seen The French Connection. Oh, no. I couldn't have guessed. But I will see it within two weeks, and we'll return in two weeks for the next episode of There Will Be Spoilers. I'm Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And you know, already know, there will be spoilers. There Will Be Spoilers. There Will Be Spoilers was hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. We were produced by Matt Bazell. Our music is by the enigmatic Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find his music all over the internet. Google him. Our artwork was by Becca Knight. You can follow her on Twitter at Becca the Knight with a K, or you can find her website at nightdraws.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SpoilersCast follow us on Facebook at There Will Be Spoilers, and you can shoot us an email if you want at spoilerscast at gmail.com. We plan on answering emails on our off-week podcast, so be sure to send in your questions or comments. And finally, please remember to subscribe to us on iTunes and or SoundCloud and review us, please. Thanks for listening.